This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. The Washington Post headline, the Taliban is retaking Afghanistan. A little outdated, of course. They've retaken Afghanistan. The headline continues, here's how the Islamist group rebuilt and what it wants. That's interesting. The, the Washington Post referred to the Taliban as an Islamist group. What does that mean in Washington Post speak? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. So why are people still confused or even in some cases perhaps ignorant about the goals of the Taliban? Is it linked to the press coverage? Well, I think there, there's two concepts that I think that if our our listeners understand this, they'll they'll understand part of what's going on here. The first is an old truism. Get religion exists because of the basic thesis that the press has trouble covering religion. But there's another side of this in this case. Americans as a culture, we're not that interested in stuff that goes on in the rest of the world. I mean, when I was had an opportunity a couple of years ago to teach classrooms full of students who were predominantly from Eastern Europe, I was fascinated by how much they knew about America that was accurate and how much they knew about our political system and how much they knew about our leaders. You know, and, and I think the vast majority of young American journalists even wouldn't even be able to find some of their countries on the map. I mean, so we, you have a problem here that's twofold. One, the press has trouble getting religion. And then the second, the American press audience isn't that interested in foreign coverage. So if you were going to name a subject in which we would struggle to get very specific facts and information into the heads of news consumers, it would be religion news on the other side of the planet. Because those two biases, practical biases in news production and consumption, would come together. I mean, this is religion. It's on the other side of the planet. The press isn't that interested in religion. Readers and listeners aren't that interested in foreign coverage. Put that together and what do you get? But the second factor that I, th I think affects some of what we're seeing now, and it'll be crucial in terms of what we look for in terms of coverage in the next couple of weeks or even months, could be linked to something that you may think is strange for me to bring this up. But were you ever enough into Star Trek that you remember the Prime Directive? Oh, sure. Okay, what do you remember about the Prime Directive? They were not allowed to interfere with a civilization's technological advance. In some cases, this meant they were not allowed to interfere at all with a civilization's advance. Exactly, and specifically, they couldn't interfere, and this is where the tensions always came. They couldn't interfere in what people people or beings in another culture taught about certain things like family and women and human rights or slavery or whatever. The prime directive in effect said we are not to judge the morality and the culture 
of people other than ourselves. And I think there's a degree to which a lot of journalists and foreign diplomats practice a kind of prime directive when it comes to looking at some other cultures elsewhere in the world. And a friend of mine who is a, an expert, a specialist in human rights and specifically religious liberty questions, and he's originally from Britain, is the, the author Michael Marshall. And Dr. Marshall always has, has said that he was surprised in Britain by the strength of what he called multiculturalism, which there they call multicult. And he was very interested to see what would happen when the dominant progressive structures of UK and Britain, what would happen when their defense of multiculturalism clashed with their defense of, say, women's rights, gay rights, and other things that were a part of their agenda. And he always assumed that women's rights and gay rights uh, and labor rights and whatever, that that would trump multiculturalism. And he was surprised the degree to which it didn't, that this willingness to not want to judge another culture really hung in there, even when you had obvious clashes with what progressives would say about certain issues. Now, right now, I think we're seeing that the only window into the actions of the Taliban that our press seems to be able to get its mind around is simply women's rights and then the idea of violence. You know, that there's going to be violence against women, violence against some groups within the culture. But it's going to be, there's, there's powerful forces pulling at the mainstream press right now not to cover a lot of the more violent aspects of the Taliban because to some degree that raises the embarrassment for the Biden White House and for the U.S. State Department and the U.S. military. To some degree, the more sympathetic images we see on TV about the abuse of women, even the, the shooting of women in, in one case, and other things that happen, such as um, the treatment of Afghans who worked with the U.S. government and cooperated. I mean, there are Western money-backed think tanks in Kabul that were producing papers on, Rodrier has a story up about one of these, they were producing entire curricula on changing Afghan concepts of masculinity and to help them understand the competing and alternative masculinities that needed to be seen as valid in Afghanistan. And the right wing has pointed out to a large degree the fact that one of the very last things the U.S. Embassy in Kabul did was celebrate Pride Month, you know, with the rainbow flag on top and with programs celebrating Pride Month and trying to convince the people of Afghanistan that they needed to pay more attention to LGBTQ issues there in Afghanistan. Well, needless to say, those are not high priorities for the Taliban, to say the least. And you could even make a point that for the press to cover those issues raises the question, and I'm not sure this is a question they want to ask, it raises the question of whether or not 
America's concept of nation building didn't take into account the religious views and the culture of the vast majority of people in Afghanistan, and that maybe our view of kind of a, a neo-colonialism of taking certain parts of the West into Afghanistan, maybe that maybe made it easier for the Taliban to return. So those are a few things just off the top of my head. Have you seen much coverage in the mainstream media about the persecution of Christians? I haven't seen anything, but that's linked to another subject. The press doesn't seem to understand that the persecution of religious minorities includes the persecution of the very Muslim believers that the American press wants to see as normal Islam. In other words, the kind of progressive, what in a rather snarky phrase I used the other day at Get Religion, kind of the, the Georgetown University faculty lounge version of Islam, that's kind of what the press wants to believe Islam as a whole is, but they have trouble covering when ISIS or the Taliban, when they crack down on moderate forms of Islam, because then you would have to admit that both of these views of Islam exist. And, and there we have a great tension, which I know I've mentioned on the show many times, but readers need to hear it again. The two dominant messages on Islam that the American press has done post 9-11 are two basic messages. One is Islam is a religion of peace. But at the same time, their other message is there is no one Islam. So when you see something like ISIS or you see something like the Taliban, you have to remember that they're not normal Islam or they're not good Islam or they're not the real Islam. When in reality, what they're trying to cover, whether it's Indonesia, whether it's India, whether it's Pakistan, whether it's Saudi Arabia, and a lot of other locations, not to mention Afghanistan, is that there is this great tension inside of Islam. Two different interpretations of the faith, two different views of their history and primary scriptures, two different views of Muslim traditions. And Muslim moderates are persecuted just as much, if not more, than Christians. But, you know, who wants the press to cover the persecution of Christians, Catholics, and other religious minorities? Who, who is calling out for the press to do that right now? My simple answer would be, I think Western Christians would like to know if it's happening. Well, not just Western Christians, but a specific kind of Western Christian. And I think the, the quickest way to say it is, who wants religious persecution covered? And Todd, the answer is, you do. And who are you? In terms of your relationship to the American press, who are you and who am I and who is Paul Marshall? I said Mike Marshall earlier. It's Paul Marshall. Who is Paul Marshall? Who are these people? And the short answer to that is most of them are evangelicals. They're conservative Catholics. And the growth of Christianity 
in Kabul and in other parts of Afghanistan is primarily among evangelical and Pentecostal Christians. And those are the bad guys. And w when it comes to all of the issues that the press cares about the most, we're back to that old issue of how do you cover persecution of the very elements of religion that you oppose? How do you pay attention to that? I think this is why I'm so mystified they don't do more to cover the persecution of liberal or moderate Muslims. I mean, if they focused there, you could at least say we're covering the persecution of religious minorities and then put Christians and some other small groups into that, under that umbrella, if you, if you see my point. But it seems to be a hard subject. There's a lot of conflict in the press when it comes to covering the persecution of others, because you would have to admit why the Taliban would be doing this persecution, which would require you to listen to the Taliban, and then when you quote what the Taliban is saying about their motives for doing the persecution, for ending a lot of women's rights, etc., they're going to be quoting the Quran, and they're going to be quoting Muslim teachers, and they're going to be quoting stories about Muhammad, and they're going to be saying a lot of things about Islam that makes the press very, very uncomfortable, because then they would have to cover the divisions inside Islam. And that seems to be the no-go zone. The headline in the Washington Post refers to the Taliban as the Islamist group. What does that mean coming from the Washington Post? Well, that's a topic we haven't written about much at Get Religion ever since the fall of ISIS. The press doesn't seem to quite know what they think that is, but the main thing is that Islamist is when you have a mixture of religious law and religious faith and political power. So it's politicized Islam. But then this gets us back to a discussion of centuries of Muslim law and tradition. I mean, you think in Saudi Arabia they don't have a mixture of Muslim law and politics? You, you think that even in Indonesia, which is about as free as a Muslim culture gets, Islam and politics are wedded, and they have their own version of Sharia law, and people have wanted that strengthened. So the degree to which the fusion of doctrine and politics is a, an essential element of Islam is something I don't think the press has dealt with very often. There is no separation of mosque and state in Islam. I mean, that's just not a concept. A diplomat friend of mine once said that he thought that Britain, when it ruled so much of this part of the world, Britain lost an opportunity when it didn't try to convince many of these nations to adopt a concept of a constitutional monarchy. Because as long as God, Allah, got to pick the king, the best you were ever going to be able to do is perhaps have some diversity in a legislature. That would probably, within a Muslim culture, be about as far as you could go toward what we would call democracy, modern democracy. But uh, Western Democrats, and I say that with a small d, are not that big on kings and kings actually getting to have power. So 
what should news consumers look for in the future coverage of the Taliban? Obviously, there are going to be a lot of stories written. What should they look for? Well, the, the first question is whether they're going to continue to do a lot of coverage at all. Because at the moment, if the numbers are saying that this has been a disaster for the Biden White House, there are sections of our media that that would be a reason not to cover what happens. And I heard, are you familiar with the movie Wag the Dog? Yes, I am. Okay. Some people thought that the announcement that we needed to have third COVID vaccine shots yesterday was a classic case of trying to wag the dog. In other words, it was a classic case of like, oh my gosh, here's another huge story. Please cover this, you know, and don't cover what's been coming in by smartphone from some parts of Afghanistan, some of the horrible videos and stuff you're getting. So number one, people should watch and see, is the press going to continue to cover this story? The The second thing, I think some of the the hard topics that we've talked about, what happens to women? Are we going to see smartphone videos of former U.S. cooperatives being hung? Are there? Are we going to see stories of U.S. personnel from religious nonprofits trying to get to the airport to get out and being intercepted and held hostage? Are we going to see coverage of, I mean, I've seen things on Twitter where people are pasting in messages from their friends in Kabul who are linked to the growing church of Kabul saying, we're getting messages from the Taliban saying, we know who you are and we're coming. Sounds like an incredibly gripping story to me, but is, is that one that we're likely to see for all the reasons? Another thing, just two kind of technical things that our listeners should remember. One is our press right now doesn't have as much money and resources as it used to have. And we've always struggled when covering conflicts of this kind to just, like if we cover events within three miles of the green zone around the U.S. Embassy and the American-friendly bars, that doesn't mean you've covered Afghanistan. So what's happening in rural Afghanistan? Does al-Qaeda come back? Is the treatment of women in front of TV cameras in Kabul different than the treatment of women far away, out in the countryside, in areas where CNN has probably never been? And you could make a case that that division between urban Afghanistan and rural Afghanistan fits a lot of other patterns of things we struggle with in our news coverage today for economic reasons. But then the flip side of that is we are in the era of smartphones. And if you'll think back about a decade to the revolts and revolution inside of Iran, how did we find out a lot of what happened in Iran during that period? And the simple fact was the Iranian regime couldn't shoot the satellites out of the sky, and they couldn't shut down Twitter. Or if they did shut down Twitter, they were cutting themselves off from the entire international community, all of commerce and everything else, which is now essentially Internet-based. So here is a really big subject. How will the Taliban get along 
with Twitter. I'm sure you've thought about this. Does anybody else think it's very interesting or strange that groups like, oh, I don't know, Focus on the Family or some other religious groups that have controversial views on LGBTQ issues, that these groups cannot have Twitter accounts or Facebook accounts with the freedom that they used to have, but the Taliban still has a Twitter account, and the Taliban is still good to go with Facebook? And how is that going to function the first time we have some Taliban activists somewhere toss a gay rights activist out of a 20-story window, and that's filmed with a smartphone? Is that going to get them thrown off Twitter, you know, when that goes live? So the tensions between the Taliban, the current Taliban, and the Internet era, I, I think, is a story that we can look forward to. And it's going to tell us a lot about where the coverage is coming from. And also in television, never forget, it's all about the visuals. And right now, how do you get visuals in Afghanistan without the government either A, preventing you from filming under normal conditions or being furious with you if you use one of these off the record, we don't know who filmed this smartphone videos. And right now, those videos are showing up on Fox, Fox News. They're not showing up, at least on what I've seen, say, on PBS and several other networks. So showing the bad stuff right now is defined as conservative news that conservative people like Todd Wilkin want to know about. And thus, it's bad because it's bad for the White House. Terry Mattingly is senior fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He is author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. And he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at GetReligion.org.